0: I founded the b Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. This podcast is sponsored by my friends at Pucker Herbs. Herbal teas are a fantastic way to increase your water intake and keep you hydrated throughout the day. A little fact for you all Did you know that your first mechanisms switch on when you're already 2% dehydrated? And dehydration leads to fatigue and weakness. So switch the kettle on, pop a pucker tea bag in, and sip away. I have had a long-term organic relationship with Pucker Herbs for many years now. And I'm so pleased that they are our official sponsor for Live Well, Be Well, Series 1. They are 100% organic and recognized by the Soil Association, as well as ethically sourced. Their newest tea, Peace Tea, has become part of my evening ritual routine and is one of my all-time favorites. Packed with hemp leaf and ashwagandha, these herbs help melt away my daily stresses. Thank you, Paka Herb, so much for sponsoring this first series. This episode features Kimberly Wilson, a psychologist and author specializing how to build a healthy brain, an area I firmly believe in too when it comes to nutrition and brain health. In the last four weeks, we have all been thrown into an unfamiliar and daunting world. Therefore, it isn't surprising that two-thirds of Britons are reporting that it's harder to stay positive about the future, and over half of us find it a struggle to stay positive day to day. In this episode, we uncover why we may be struggling to cope with a mixture of emotions at present, what strategies can we implement, and what foods may help support our brains. You will soon be able to tell. Kimberly and I had a lot of fun throughout this podcast, and I hope it brings you some laughter as well as important information too. Hi Kimberly, welcome to the podcast. Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> happy Easter. Well, happy Friday. I'm um sorry for making you work on your Friday uh, Easter
1: morning. Not at all. I kind of didn't even realize it was the Easter break, so um You know, I think everyone's a little bit confused. Everything's a little bit strange at the moment.
0: It's so true. I woke up and thought, oh my goodness, I'm making Kimberly record on a bank holiday, but um neither of us realised, so it's fine. (laughs) Um, because I know that you're so busy at the moment, which is probably why all the days are morphed into one and we're all at home. Because I'm absolutely loving your Instagram, by the way, I have to say. You're providing everyone with such useful information. Um, At this time of uncertainty, especially me, I have to say, um, (laughs) and your podcast. So before I delve into my questions, which I think, you know, there's quite a few. um, You always ask on your podcast um, what their guest had for breakfast. And I thought Mm. it might be nice to reverse it and ask you (laughs) (laughs) this morning. Kimberly, what did you have for breakfast to start your day?
1: Um, well, I haven't yet, so I wanted to get my my daily ration of exercise in before starting this podcast and I've got a few other bits to do this afternoon So I went for a run, but I have got a peach Melba smoothie uh, prepping on the counter So I've got peaches and nectarines, raspberries, I'll throw a banana in there, um, maybe some green tea powder and then I'll probably have that with a handful of nuts or a slice of toast and nut butter uh, when we're done
0: Okay, so I'm going to pop us straight into all the questions that I'm about to ask you, Kimberly, because you know that there is quite a few. Yes. So I was actually reading this morning over my coffee that a recent poll carried out last week in the UK found that 62% of Britons surveyed that they found it harder to stay positive about the future since the outbreak, while 55% found it harder to stay positive day to day. And I think that's something that we can all relate to at the moment um, because mm. we are living in quite uncertain times and a lot of our routines have been changed and it needs a lot of adaption. And uh-huh. I love what you've created on social media of hashtag flatten the anxiety curve, um, which is the main, the main kind of thing I want to talk to you about right now. Uh-huh. Would you be able to break down for everyone that's listening really what, what is anxiety? How can it can how, how can it occur? And what strategies can we build in to cope when control, such as having to work from home, um, when it's all been taken away from you? So I'd love if you could just expand really on anxiety.
1: Okay, so uh we'll be here for three hours. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I always do this to you, don't I? I'm like, Kimberly, give us the full debrief. <laughs>
1: Okay, so anxiety is, you know, a natural, emotional, psychological response to a sense of threat, a sense of threat about the future. Right. So uh, we tend to feel anxious about things that we know to be coming or believe to be coming. And so this situation is almost textbook anxiety provoking that what we're being told is to kind of batten down the hatches, buckle up, prepare for the arrival of this, really, we're, we're thinking about the peak of um, infectious cases of COVID 19. And one of the things that really increases our tendency to anxiety is uncertainty. And here again, the coronavirus is almost tailor made to create these conditions, right? So uncertainty is that sense of a vague threat and coronavirus couldn't it be more vague it's a novel virus no one in the planet has in- encountered it before it's invisible you know you can't see it coming it's some of the cases have no symptoms so anybody could be carrying it at any time it, we don't know how serious it's going to be some people have serious symptoms some people have very very mild symptoms so we don't know really who's most at risk except you know that the the key vulnerable people but we know that That some younger people and and healthy people have been coming down with serious cases as well. So it has really almost the perfect storm of uncertainty, vague threat about something coming in the future to raise that sense of worry and of fear about our safety. So that's anxiety and the uncertainty of uh, coronavirus specifically. And broadly, what we try to do when we're trying to help people manage anxiety is really keep an eye on the balance you know so how realistic is the level of worry that you are experiencing about this in relation to the actual threat and that will vary for different people but also help people to feel more able to cope right so you'll become overwhelmed with worry and anxiety if you feel like you don't have sufficient skills or resources in order to cope with whatever that threat is and so when we're working clinically with people what we want to do is really build up and shore up your resources your coping skills so that when that threat does arrive if it does arrive for you you feel like you've got what it takes to manage it and survive it because the biggest worry for anybody in any kind of anxious situation whether it's you know going to talk to your boss about an issue going on at work or having a serious conversation with your partner people often avoid them or feel very anxious about them because they feel like oh I won't be able to cope and so really our focus is on helping people to cope um and then the third part of your question
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's many things i want to say but i don't want to interrupt the flow so i'm going to keep letting you talk and come back
1: uh, in terms of strategies there are many and yes with the the video series the hashtag Flattered the anxiety curve video series what i'm really trying to help people do is to build in coping skills like everyday emotional management coping skills and also adaptation skills mm. because that's one of the yeah. fundamental features of the human species, we are adaptable. We, you know, we can live in any area of the planet, basically except underwater, right? You know, we live yeah. in ice and snow, we live in, in deserts, we live in forests and jungles and and cities. So our capacity to adapt to our environment and to our circumstances is basically unsurpassed. And And it's worth people remembering that, that yes, this is novel, this is new, and in many ways, unprecedented but as a species we have encountered lots of unprecedented things in the past and we've adapted to them so I really want people to kind of bear that in mind the human species has the capacity to manage this to get to the other end of it and and to be okay
0: yeah that's so true actually there's an amazing part in your book which you talk about change and coming to the realisation of how you do that mentally. And I think that's a really important thing that anytime time change is chucked into the process, which there's a lot of change going on now, mm-hmm. it's actually starting to acknowledge that and what mechanisms that you spoke about and strategies you can do to support it. I think that's Absolutely. really important to, to, just to pop in. Because a lot of people now, I mean, I'm living on my own. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's pros and cons to that. Um, And there's also people living in relationships with families, with young children. And again, adaptation, as you said, is so important because nobody really is around the same group of people Mm -hmm. day in, day out. And that can put a lot of pressure onto relationships, Mm -hmm. onto family situations. Um, Or even somebody living by themselves because they're not having any type of contact um, at the moment at all. Mm -hmm. So do you have any advice for how people can cope in these really unusual and intense situations and how you can manage your emotions at that time?
1: Okay. So I think the first thing that people need to allow themselves to do is to really acknowledge the absurdity of the situation right yeah. that I a way love which... that you said that the absurdity <laughs> it's just absurd <laughs> like a month ago i was thinking about like five i guess five weeks ago now i was so the beginning of march strolling down um portobello road market you know looking at bits and bobs talking to people singing in a cockney accent you know all sorts <laughs> yeah. things okay i a preview of that at the end <laughs> popping in and and, and grabbing some food and everything was normal. Yeah. And then three weeks later, all of a sudden, restaurants are closed, hotels are closed. You're absolutely not allowed to go to markets. And if you do, then you're not allowed within two meters of another person. And it's just extraordinary that everything has changed so quickly Mm -hmm. and also a bit absurd that it's changed so quickly. So what I wouldn't want people to do is to just think, oh, I just need to, just get on with it as if nothing's happened. Everything's happened, and mm. also it's a bit ridiculous. So I think people need to be able to, you know, almost sometimes have a laugh, have a laugh about that. Yeah, um, but also acknowledge that it's it's just bizarre and absurd and and very 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 strange. Um, and within that, then give yourself a little time to adjust. Right, it's like when. You know, if you go on holiday, you know, even if, if you're you're staying in a new place or you move house, you no, know, when you're new in a new environment, it takes a little bit of time to get familiar with that environment. You know, you might still think that the teacups are in the same place they were in your old house, or <laughs> you know, you know, it takes a little while for you to adapt to your surroundings and to get into a little rhythm of how things are now. And so I think for many people. We're in that process of adaptation everything feels a bit weird you feel a bit seasick you know nothing feels certain underfoot and so again the second part is allow yourself a little bit of time to adjust everything has changed everything is different uh everything is continuously changing we're getting new information and advice almost on the daily yeah so give yourself you know a little bit of compassion to say it's going to take me a little while to get back into things don't don't criticize yourself for not being absolutely fine straight away
0: mm. and what about relationships what if you're with someone and you're feeling a lot of stressor and you know maybe you're so bickering a lot and having an argument and that can well, add a lot absolutely of absolutely the
1: same right so I, I, your relationship is in a new space now it's in a new rhythm and the two of you or you know the family should sit down and say this is weird isn't it you know What tell me what you need in order for us to be okay during this situation, right? If you're a kind of you know, sometimes you have a person in the relationship, if we're thinking about a couple, um, who one person is slightly more extrovert, perhaps, and another person is slightly more introvert. And even though you get on well, that maybe the introvert needs a little bit more space to themselves for them to feel at a kind of emotional equilibrium. Have Mm -hmm. that discussion, tell me what you need so that if you've gone off to be quiet, I don't take it personally. I don't think, Oh, you need to get away from me. There's something wrong that you're just doing what you need to take care of yourself emotionally, you know, because even, you know, in families and couples and we love each other, we all have this need for our own little bit of space and quiet and peace. And especially if we don't feel as if we have the freedom, even to open our door and casually go out for a walk when we Mm. want, you know, because we're trying to be responsible and adhere to the rules. Um, You're going to have to have, I think, a very clear conversation where you set the ground rules, and there'll be a little bit of, you know, trial and error. You know, shall we have dinner together but have breakfast separately? Will will that work for you? Will that be enough space for you? You know, shall we have a time every day where we sit down and and watch something enjoyable so that we're still having fun together but don't feel like we're constantly in each other's faces all the time? So I, I would really recommend. A conversation now more than ever, the quality of your communication is going to be the key to your success in getting through this if you're isolating or or in lockdown with other people.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant advice. I think it's also, yeah, it's becoming quite aware of your own emotions, isn't it? And it's becoming, you know, more engaged with yourself. And I think when we kind of have our daily routines, Mm. we maybe forget that sometimes. We don't really have room to forget that right now. <laughs> so you can't really go anywhere It's a constant reminder.
1: I think that's really true. Yeah, I think people, well, the other thing that's going to be really confronting about this, I've been, you know, and I've been thinking about this in terms of my own clients and, and perhaps people that I know, is that there are lots of ways that, we avoid looking at either ourselves Mm. or problems in our relationships by being busy, right? Mm -hmm. We're out of the house, we're doing things, we're working out, we're, you know, hustling, we're going to the shops, we're online, you know, we're busy, busy, busy. And that allows us to kind of paper over the cracks, perhaps, either in our own relationships with ourselves or in our relationships with other people. And I think there's a possibility then that for some people who might be in this situation, there's going to be a real emotional confrontation of we're going to really have to look at what's going on here, the reality Mm -hmm. of this situation emotionally or relationally. And I think that's going to be, that's going to be quite tricky. I think for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think kind of when Ever it comes to understanding emotions it's it's quite tricky and, and it's quite hard and maybe you could give us a little rundown about really all about how our brain how it works <laughs> I mean not in two minutes but I know you speak about <laughs> a lot I don't do this to you a lot I did this to you at our event I said you're going to speak about everything in 20 minutes and she was like <laughs> okay I'll, st- I'll try but there's certain areas of the brain that process our emotions and Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when people can look at it more logically it Mm -hmm. really helps understand why you know you might be feeling more anxious at certain times or why something like a run in the morning can be really helpful to help boost certain types of emotions so would you be able to just give us and I know that you have a chapter within your book which I absolutely Adore, by the way, but you have a part of there talking about getting to know the brain. Yeah. Um, and I just love if you could maybe talk a little bit about the important areas of the brain, um, mm. and where our emotions are processed.
1: Sure thing. Um. Yes, and I really. I was really keen for this book because there are lots of books out there about individual aspects of brain health, you know, Mm. exercise, mindset, nutrition. And I wanted this book to be as comprehensive as possible and kind of cover everything. Which it
0: does. (laughs) Honestly, it
1: does. (laughs) And I was really keen to get, you know, as a psychologist, the role of emotions in there, because mm. we don't tend to think about emotions as being a key feature of our brain health, mm-hmm. which is very, very strange, right? Because if you ever are in the position of needing either a psychological or psychiatric assessment, um, then actually what the person who is assessing you is doing is really taking an account of your emotions, your emotional reactivity, the appropriateness of your emotions, the the response that you have to certain things, you know, are you laughing in the right places? If you're talking about something that's very, very sad, is there any emotion in your face or in your voice, or do you seem kind of flat and cut off from it? Are you, you know, perhaps angry at, at something that it's unclear to everybody else that we're angry about? So mm. we're always actually thinking about the quality of your emotions. And so it's always very strange to me that there isn't more you know in everyday healthcare more guidance for people on understanding and managing your emotions so that's why i was so keen to have that section in the book mm. and there are a handful of emotions that people really struggle with um and anger is is one of the big ones um things like guilt and shame are big ones as well yes and and i kind of lead off with anger i'm a big fan of anger for example <laughs> um I think anger is fantastic. I, I dedicated an entire episode of my podcast to it. I've done posts on it. There will be banners and bunting. <laughs> like, <there's, laughs> because I think anger is really, really, really misunderstood. We think about anger as something that is a sign of perhaps childishness because grown-ups should be able to control their emotions. And if you're angry, then you're out of control. And that's absolutely not the case. Oh, hey, wow. About, okay tell us yeah. more. I talk about anger in the book as being your self-esteem emotion. And we're slightly off track in terms of coronavirus right now, but
0: we're, <laughs> oh, no, we'll this is, we no, carry on. We can put the coronavirus to bed for the moment. I mean, this is much more
1: interesting. <laughs> um, so I talk about anger as your self-esteem emotion. And what I mean by that is that anger evolved as a protective instinct, right? Mm-hmm. So we evolved in situations where we kind of had to protect our territories. Um back in the day that used to be maybe a physical territory or a family territory or resources like food and you know access to water and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But emotionally it serves us the same function. And so for example if you're you're driving or even even you're standing in a queue and someone cuts in in front of you your response is to get angry and that anger is an indication of the unfairness of the situation, right? Yeah, It's, oh, it's really unfair that someone has cut in in front of me. It's really unfair that I'm, you know, adhering to the social norms and basic manners and someone else has decided not to. And I think if you can get on board with the idea that anger is an indication to you of unfairness or injustice that you are experiencing or that you're seeing in the world, then it shifts your understanding of anger, right, and my my key example for this is of Rosa Parks, and, um, you know, that in backing Alabama, in segregated, racially segregated America, she refused to give up her seat, so a black woman in the south, she refused to give up her seat to a white person, because she was angry, but she wasn't violent you know she wasn't violent she wasn't out of control she sat still in her righteous anger and she was one of the catalysts of the civil rights movement so your anger if you understand it and can process it and use it properly can be both an indication to you of something that's unfair and unjust and therefore something that needs to be rectified Mm. in your environment and also fuel you know it can power a lot of good so I kind of do that for the big five emotions in the book. And I talk about, look, you need to understand what these emotions mean Mm. so that you don't just try to suppress them, cut them off, deny them, distract yourself from them, you know, run for hours to try to ignore them. Mm. Any of these less helpful, you know, exactly, drink them away, Mm -hmm. go into workaholism, all of these activities that people use to avoid their emotions which end up being harmful because they restrict your ability to have relationships. If you do that, if you can't feel who you are, you can't relate to other people pro- properly. Mm. Um, so I think what people need is an education in what emotions mean. Um, I haven't spoken about where they are in the brain, but they are there in oh, the brain. Yeah. The limb. <laughs> So should we talk a little bit about the limbic system? <laughs> yeah. So for, ex- for example, with anger, there's an area in the brain called the ventral uh, medial hypothalamus. And what's really interesting about this area of the brain is that in trials where they've uh, looked at it in animals, you can turn a docile animal into an aggressive animal by electrically stimulating this area of the brain. So what that tells us is that anger is hardwired into the brain. It's not a choice. It's not just a decision that you're making. It's not a a sign of a lack of control. It's there in your brain. And things don't tend to stick around in your brain if if they don't serve a function. And this is what I mean, that there is a function to these emotions. They serve a purpose, which is why they're still there. And so trying to deny them and suppress them is actually going against nature trying to understand them and use them is you know going with the best of your nature
0: that's mate. no that's do you know what that's so true it's just understanding your emotions and as you said mm. no one we don't have that at school do we, we don't have no. you know lessons on how to really harness your emotions how to empower your emotions and that really hit home for me when you said actually anger isn't always bad because I do always think oh I'm an adult now come on you can't get angry
1: mm. no <laughs> and it's I, true I think, I think it's a real issue and particularly for women and you know we're, we're told we're, we're kind of socialized into being good and, and docile and quiet and polite and nice which is a word that's makes my skin crawl mm. <laughs> you, should, well, you should be nice just be nice no not if you're being treated badly yeah and one of the problems is that is if you socialize a person into denying their anger then you cut them off from their main signal that they're not being treated well right mm. Mm. and so what ends up happening is that they just put up with being treated badly because they can't connect the feeling that says there is injustice happening here that i'm experiencing
0: yeah, no, that's um, and that all happens within the limbic system. And what part was that in the limbic system? You said that all of these, the
1: anger it's and the, the emotions, the VMH. So the the anger is in the the ventral medial hypothalamus. Um, other things like anxiety tends to tends to focus around the amygdala. But there's mm-hmm. lots of interconnections in you know in the brain. Nothing works in isolation, and there's always a feedback loop between you know the more the cooler, perhaps more rational aspects of the brain, and then the kind of hotter older uh, in terms of evolutionary terms parts of the brain so um, yeah the limbic system is generally the area that's considered central to our emotion regulation but it has lots of connections into the prefrontal cortex which is where our higher human uh, skills and uh, attributes are situated so our reason and our uh, morality and our personality all sits in the pfc but Talks to the limbic system very much.
0: No, that's, I mean, I think you mentioned a really big point there that actually they're all interconnected. And I think that's part of actually our body and our brain are all interconnected. And that's another part within the book that you touch on, which is obviously a field that I love um, and that I work in as well as a practitioner um, and a nutritionist, is how important general lifestyle factors are. And one of those is nutrition. And I know that you studied nutrition as well. Um, And so that's a really keen area that you discuss a lot about. And Mm -hmm. you do delve into it, into your book as well, into into, in in a chapter, Um, which I thought was fantastic. Because I think a lot of people sometimes think their brain and their body are still disconnected. And Mm -hmm. they don't realize how, you know, how powerful actually the link is. The gut and brain axes, for example. Mm which we'll talk about again, and I'll let you discuss more of that. Um, But, you know, when I had someone that I, you know, Professor Tim Spector, uh, somebody who I love and who you met at at my Live Well, Be Well um, event in February, and he talks about the importance of our gut microbes on our brain health. And this is, you know, an area of research, really, that's become much more apparent in the last 10 years. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And for a healthy brain... How can we eat to support a healthy brain diet, essentially, I kind of Mm -hmm. want to call it? What are your Mm -hmm. kind of top areas or what would you like to discuss on here to help people, um, you know, increase their variety and diversity of foods? Not for aesthetic purposes, not for Mm. how they look, which is an industry that I have worked in for many years. And that's what Mm. I've always seen people Or people who come to clinic want to eat a certain way for aesthetic purposes, but people Mm -hmm. don't actually realise your brain is made of 60% fat and Mm -hmm. your brain is very connected to the fuel and the food that you put in your mouth Mm -hmm. and you can optimise that. So could you speak through a little bit about the types of foods or the way of eating to optimise a healthy brain
1: diet? Yes. Um, And again... We'll be here for a while, everybody, buckle up. (laughs) We might have series two
0: (laughs) or three or four.
1: Um, All right. So I guess the first thing to say, well, there's lots to say. And what I want people to understand is really, if you think of your brain as separate from your body, it's probably not your fault. Um, Psychology and psychiatry have been pretty guilty of doing that as well. You know, that we think about the mind as something... Kind of ambiguous and mm-hmm. abstract. It's just, it's just, you know, your thoughts and ideas, and they're just out there in the what in, you know, in the ether somewhere. <laughs> um, and therefore nothing that's to do with concrete things like the physical world, the physical reality, or physical body has an effect on your mind, which is the most bizarre statement if you stop and think about it, right? Because your mind is a function of your brain. And your brain is an organ. Your brain is a physical organ that is situated in your body. And because it's an organ, it is, you know, affected by all of the things that go on in your body. It's affected by the amount of nutrition it has access to. It is affected by the amount of oxygen that it is able to get to it and pump through it. It's um, Is affected by the amount of of sugar and glucose energy availability. And -hmm. of course, it's affected by the kind of substrates, the building blocks that are available from the body, from the bloodstream, from the diet in order to build its basic structure. Mm -hmm. but also all of your neurotransmitters. So your serotonin, which is the hormone associated with good mood, your Mm -hmm. dopamine, which is the the hormone neurotransmitter associated with reward and goal-directed behavior, you know, with acetylcholine, which is associated with learning and memory. Mm -hmm. All of these require vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients from the foods that you eat. So everything that you eat builds your brain and this is the part that just doesn't make sense when we're not teaching people to think about their brains when we're teaching people to you know eat well and we we think about oh you know you need to eat well to protect your heart you know not too many saturated fats not too much salt Mm -hmm. but what about your brain and particularly since heart disease isn't our leading cause of death
0: you know cancer
1: isn't our leading cause of death Mm -hmm. our leading cause of death in the UK is dementia. You know, and, and so it doesn't make sense at all that we're not teaching people about how to protect their brains because there are definitely things that you can do. Um, the first thing that I would always say, particularly, and because I think it's a particular area of concern, is our intake as a population of essential fats. I'm so, so um, in the agreement huh? Yeah. Um, Your EPA and your DHA, those long chain fatty acids that are found predominantly in fish and seafood and i say predominantly in fish and seafood because you also hear or you'll see on packets oh these flax seeds are high in omega-3 these chia seeds are high in omega-3 they're high or or a source of omega-3 but the the version that's in plant foods has a very very low conversion rate yes into the form that your brain is made of Mm -hmm. and so if you're only eating it from plant sources you simply will not have enough. And that's important because these fats literally make up the outer wall of each of your brain cells.
0: That's predominantly um, the DHA, isn't it?
1: It's predominantly DHA. Yeah. Um, and so if I, I use the analogy of a house or even a wall, right? If you, if you have a wall in front of you, a third of those bricks are essential fats and they're called essential because your body cannot make them. You have to get them from your food. So if you're not getting them from your food, it's like you've got every third brick is missing. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have much less stability in the, in the basic structure. But the second part of that is that if those fats can't be found in the diet then you know your your brain is resourceful your body is resourceful and it will try to find other fats to put in there to, to make up the membrane mm. but the fats that it will find are less flexible and mm-hmm. um, so they won't allow the normal movement of nutrients into the cell or of toxic uh, byproducts out of the cell and so it all will impair the function of your brain cell um, and also DHA is required for um, your cells to communicate with one another so yeah. again if you're not getting enough you're going to have impairments in that communication um, and I always lead off with this because so few people are getting enough yeah it's and it's a, a huge real problem. concern mm-hmm. um it's a real problem because what it means is that your brain is from the get-go struggling to function mm. and you can't have good mood you 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 know you can't have good brain function if the basic structure is suffering so I always lead off with that please ensure that you're you're eating uh, the recommended more, more, more than so I, I'm, I'm so I to a always lot of say more
0: than because more than this has been my area of research for many years is, is oily mm. fish and it's something that I started to research many years ago when I was at university um, with my nutrition and biochemistry because I myself am very dyslexic. So you can imagine that being Mm -hmm. quite fun in my biochemistry lessons.
1: Um, (laughs) (laughs) Interesting compounds being created. Exactly.
0: (laughs) I made all my own enzymes. And I remember really, I've always loved fish. And I'm just going to say, it, so it's not any type of fish. It's oily fish. That's things like sardines, mackerel, herring, salmon. Tuna actually isn't an oily fish as of Doesn't last September. Mm, I know. Poor old tuna. Damn it. <laughs> Still have it, but it's not counted as your oily fish. But public health actually recommend to have one oily fish a week. Mm. But I actually try to say to my clients, have at least two to three oily Mm. portions of oily fish a week if you can um and mix it up I know also that many people don't like oily fish they can't have the smell as much Mm -hmm. um or it's just a taste preference and I think in that instance that's when supplementation is is important Mm -hmm. um as you said you know you can have it in oils you can pop it onto your salads um you can have it in a capsule form but you know, for me, from the research when I did a looked at a kind of a big systematic review of all different studies that had looked into learning disabilities and fish intake, they found that well, I found um, it was over a thousand studies I looked at. Oh, that, wow! Yeah, that yeah it was a lot. Um, <laughs> that children um, who had who had dyslexia or ADHD or dyspraxia or some kind of learning disability. When they ate um, oily fish, so two portions of oily fish a week, Mm -hmm. they overcame their chronicle reading age. And that just just shows the power of having something as a simple dietary change. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not having to change your whole diet. It's adding in two or three portions of oily fish a week. Now, surprisingly, when I looked at the studies that they conducted it with supplement trials, again the results are very mixed some, mm-hmm. I mean it wasn't conclusive um, some show that it was effective, some show that it had no effect at all um, and that just shows again with supplements how bioavailable are they we don't know mm-hmm. and it really shows that food here is first Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can stomach oily fish, um, then please do try and have mm. at least two to three portions of oily fish a week. As you said, the government guidelines are one portion of oily fish one, a week. yeah. But I oh. just, I know, it's really frustrating. <laughs> um, hopefully people listen to this podcast and go, I'm going to go and have some oily fish for lunch. So sardines on toast um, or something like that, because it is those oils, as you said, the mm. DHA and the EPA that are so important for our brain um sorry I just wanted to cut that's such an area of research that I love and I we just don't have enough of it and we have too much omega-6 in our diet Mm -hmm. as well which um kind of stops the conversion rate as you said at those shorter chain Mm um omega-3s which you see in chai seeds and flax seeds and they're always as you said talked about being an omega-3 food but it's not the compounds that we need, so. I'm going to let you carry on now. No, Sorry, no that's just lovely. A... <laughs> no, that's
1: absolutely perfect. And I, you probably said it better than I could. Um, and Definitely you'll not. Be, <laughs> you'll be really interested, I think, in um, the, my special series coming out in the podcast. This is just you and me chatting now. I'm following up on some research from 20 years ago, showing that nutritional supplementation specifically, or especially of the omega-3s, um, reduces violence in prisons <gasps> by 37%. Oh, um, And I've spoken to all the original researchers, bar one, um, and it's just extraordinary stuff. And all of those researchers, every, all of them, yeah, I think all of them, bar one, they eat lots of oily fish but they also take a supplement you know so the people working in this are like basically you can't get enough no (laughs) no it's so true it's so so true but going back to
0: brain house so we obviously know that oily fish (laughs) fish
1: and omega-3
0: um if you don't have it, a supplement will hopefully be beneficial than not having it at all um Mm -hmm. but it is better to have food first can you take us through some of the other foods um that are important for a healthy brain
1: Yes, the other one that I will always bang on about, and especially when I'm seeing more people switching to plant-based diets, which is fine, um, is <laughs> B12. Um, and and I say it again because B12 is predominantly found in uh, animal foods. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's basically impossible to get sufficient B12 on a fully plant-based or vegan diet. And the reason that B12 is so important for your brain specifically is because of its role in myelination. So if you cast your mind back to your high school uh, biology lessons, you'll know that there's a long, there's the kind of the head of your brain cell, that, you know, the round bit, and then there's a long tail um, called the axon. And the axon is like a wire in any of your household devices. You know, you've got the metal wire, and then around it, you've got the, the insulating plastic. Um, In the brain, that wire is called the axon and it's insulated with a substance called uh, myelin. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And myelin is required to help speed up the reactions and to make the signal go down the axon. When myelin is damaged, so in diseases like multiple sclerosis, for example, it's almost as if the wire short circuits and the, the signal can't go down. And that's when you start getting problems with function you know if it happens in an optic nerve then perhaps you have blurred vision or temporary loss of sight if it happens in a motor nerve then you have problems moving that limb or that area of the body Um, and what we know about b12 is that it's crucial for myelin and so a deficiency in b12 starts to have similar effects You know, so you can end up with neuropathy. You can end up with pain in your nerve cells. And at the extreme end, a B12 deficiency can mimic dementia. Mm -hmm. So it's a real concern for anybody switching to a diet where they're cutting out uh, animal foods. Because I think one of the things that happens is that people think that animal foods are just protein sources. Yeah. Or just, you know, fat sources. And they say, well, if I'm cutting it out, but I'm getting my protein from somewhere else, and I'm getting my fats from somewhere else then I'm fine but they're actually quite nutrient dense foods and you know for certain nutrients and so if you are switching or you're reducing you know it's important to understand which nutrients you might be missing out that in particular from my perspective are relevant to brain health and so uh, along with the omega-3s that that would be b12 um so that's
0: another one. Um, yeah. and also can I pop in there really quickly? Sure um thing. the B twelve, once you so say you've been um deficient for a long time, you can't reverse the effect. It's not like your liver, <laughs> where you can kind of just regenerate it. Um mm-hmm. once you start mimicking those effects of dementia, you know, you kind of you can't you can't add anything on to, to make that mm-hmm. go away. That's kind of it for life. Um and so that's why it's really important when you are switching to maybe a vegan or plant-based diet, which can be done in a healthy way, mm-hmm. um, it is to be really aware because what you don't want to do is be deficient in B12 for, say, 20 years. Mm. And then these effects start happening that you can't reverse. So Absolutely. it's just re- that's why I think we all want to talk about it so much is because once you do get to that stage, it isn't reversible. Mm. Um, and so that's obviously, I think that's the worry. Definitely.
1: And, and especially because people tend to switch these diets for health reasons. So, mm. you know, it's admirable in lots of ways, but it potentially sets you up for different deficiencies that you should just be aware of so that you can supplement appropriately.
0: Oh, no, absolutely. And I, do you know what? Something that I really love you to talk about, because I know it's part of your healthy brain diet, is, is inflammatory foods and inflammation and why... What well, One, I think, maybe let's break it down. What is inflammation? Um. Two... <laughs> Mm-hmm. why is that um, Let me destructive? Write down. <laughs> <laughs> Two, I mean, I feel this podcast is going for a while. Two, why is inflammation detrimental? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, what is the dietary inflama- inflammatory index?
1: All right. So, uh,
0: <laughs> in- <laughs> here we go. So
1: inflammation is your body's response, your body's normal immune response to illness or injury so if you get a cut or a graze or if you get a cold you know that stuffiness that heat that pain um the restriction in movement perhaps if you've got an inflamed joint that is your immune system's response that is your inflammatory response and we need that we want that because if you didn't have an inflammatory response then you would be overtaken by the pathogen whatever it is <laughs> and uh not last very long frankly um so (laughs) it's 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 not a bad thing fundamentally Mm -hmm. um but and usually it's a self-limiting response so that once the pathogen has gone you know once that bacteria or you know the virus has been subdued your body returns back down to an almost kind of observational baseline level where you've just got your immune cells looking around the body making sure everything's fine looking out for bad guys but you know it doesn't have to send an alert back to to base for for backup. Mm -hmm. Um, However, if inflammation goes on for a long time, and if it goes on for a long time, that's either because there's a chronic infection Mm -hmm. or because there's something about the way that we're living that makes the body feel as if it's under pressure all the time, it's under a lot of stress. This can lead your immune response to be higher and heightened for a longer period of time. And when that happens, we're in a state of what's called systemic or chronic inflammation. And in the book I talk about, I liken it to, you know, having two police officers who just haven't had a break. You know, they've been on the beat for, I don't know, four months, nonstop. They haven't slept, they haven't a break, they haven't had any snacks. And they're trying to do their job, but obviously they're not in, in, the, in the best state, And perhaps they start calling for backup when they see some trouble, but maybe there's not any real trouble there, or maybe it's a case of mistaken identity. And when you get an inflammatory response when nothing's there, then the inflammatory cells can damage the body's own healthy tissues, and that's called autoimmunity. And if there's an inflammatory response, but it's a case of mistaken identity, then that might be something like getting uh, an inflammatory response to a peanut protein, and that's when we get allergies. Mm-hmm. So, inflammation can go wrong, and we know that there are aspects of our lives. So, a sedentary lifestyle, a, a, a nutritionally deficient diet, chronic stress, um, those sorts of things can can contribute to this ongoing state of inflammation. Um, and and that inflammation can cross from the body into the brain. And if it triggers inflammation in the brain, that becomes neuroinflammation. And we know that neuroinflammation is associated with increased risk of depression, increased risk of bipolar disorder, increased risk of schizophrenia. So this is this is why it's always my concern and I'm always thinking about these things. And the Dietary Inflammatory Index is a measure used in research to look at the inflammatory potential of somebody's diet so they basically you know stack up all of the ingredients that make up someone's diet and they've cross referenced it with biomarkers of inflammation in the body and it comes out with a scale of foods that are more associated with a either pro inflammatory profile or an anti inflammatory profile and the foods that turn up to be you know within the anti inflammatory kind of profile are all the ones that you've heard of so again your omega-3s your epa um s- herbs and spices you know ginger and onions and garlic and turmeric um your the the vitamins that come from leafy green vegetables so mm-hmm. essentially that mediterranean style diet that people keep banging on about yeah it's <laughs> you know it's the helpful. addition of spices yeah right um is the one that seems to be most associated with helping to keep levels of systemic inflammation in the body down um and so if that's another reason to get you eating leafy greens or you know even you know a curry because a curry has lots of lovely spices in it that are associated with good things so yeah i love a chana masala so Ooh, if, <laughs> you know, i like that too these sorts of things and having a, a broad variety of nutrients available for you, that's what's going to help create the, or support the conditions in your body to help reduce the risk of having a higher inflammatory profile and, and additionally to protect your brain.
0: So, so those so kind of, I guess, it's beta-carotene, I think, mm-hmm. is one of them, which is um, it's found normally in sweet potatoes or kind of any brightly coloured vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um Fibre, another thing we might if we have time, talk about the gut brain axis, but fiber is mm-hmm. really important. Um, your berries, your mm. garlic, your ginger, your green tea and your black tea, which actually I think people might be quite happy to hear. Yes. Um and Tim Specter speaks a lot about it, but actually, sometimes even coffee. Um I know that yes. might be not on it, but it's actually quite good for your gut microbes and anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Um, your omega-3 fatty acids, as you said, your turmeric. So all of these foods. I always say to people, instead of thinking what you can't have, try Mm -hmm. and have what you can have and what things are going to really help. And so there are definitely a couple of foods that, as you said, and it's very clearly beautifully written in your book. (laughs) But what foods um, should we maybe limit? Because I think alcohol is maybe one thing that I've heard that can be quite, maybe not the best
1: for our brain health. Mm. And could you explain why? (laughs) And interestingly, the profile of alcohol... Um, there's a little bit of a paradox because it seems that in quite small amounts and I mean quite small amounts we're probably talking less or, or around 80 to 100 meals per day of something like a red wine rather than mm. say vodka yep.
0: <laughs> again in line with the Mediterranean <laughs> diet the flavonoids,
1: That's... the polyphenols yes exactly um, that people tend to have better mental health outcomes than than those who are completely teetotal Mm-hmm. um that is interesting that, it is interesting and it, it might be something correlational about that you know if you're teetotal is it because you've had to abstain or yes there's a possibility that a little bit of alcohol at least um might be part of a brain healthy lifestyle mm. however there is a very clear point when alcohol becomes toxic to the brain and that's partly because when you when alcohol is metabolized in the body in the liver what happens is that it creates aldehydes um and and these are compounds that are basically used to preserve um you know bodies in embalming um and preserve things it's kind of like pickling you you end up kind of pickling mm. your brain which you do not want to do and we certainly think that a high proportion probably around 10% at least, of the dementias that we see are actually alcohol, alcoholic dementias, they're called, wow. which are caused by long-term intake of excessive alcohol. So alcohol would certainly be something that I would be encouraging people to look at mm. and, and probably reduce. I think most people who drink are probably drinking a bit too much in terms of their brain health. Yeah. Um, the other thing is actually and i think people get quite jumpy about sugar but when in the research rather than say you know a piece of cake which most of the research says two or three times a week not a problem Mm. where you get a very clear increase in inflammation and in inflammatory um, biomarkers is in sugar sweetened beverages so fizzy drinks in particular, or even not in fizzy drinks, so things like Oasis, which is just a sweetened but still beverage, should sweetened beverages have a very clear dose dependent response on biomarkers of inflammation? Mm. So that if they just ask someone to stop drinking one, if someone has maybe a can a day, asking them to take one of those cans a week away and just replace it with water mm. reduces that person's inflammatory biomarkers. Mm. So there there really isn't I'm afraid very much good news you know usually you can say you know with with things like alcohol a small amount maybe but not too much but there doesn't seem to be a kind of benefit of sugar sweetened beverages um, in the literature so if you can cut them down please do um or if you you know want to start by diluting them and
0: Mm. I mean, it goes to the so point no. of even when, you know, even just for our brain health, again, that will link to obesity. So our brain does not register all the, the, the liquid sugars that we drink. So such as the alcohol or the, you know, the fizzy drinks, uh-huh. our brain does not register that as food, as an energy intake. And I think that's really important. People don't always mm. seem to think of it in that way. Your brain doesn't say, oh, I've had this much sugar because it's in a mm. liquid form. Whereas if you had that in a food form, your brain would be registering it more. Mm. And so it's not even as well. It's the it's the increase of obesity that they cause um, mm. from having constant sugary drinks and the dental implications as well. And so there's so many ma- multifaceted dimensions <laughs> of health here. It's affecting your cognition and your brain health. It's affecting mm. your weight, which again might lead to a higher risk of, fe- you know, depression um dental health so there's again I think it's so interlinked here isn't it and it's mm. kind of saying actually let's just try and increase our water and hydration which is good for our brain mm-hmm. may I say and I'm sure you can obviously expand on that <laughs> why is hydration so important for our brain health because I know that as soon as I forget to drink I'm fatigued and I'm tired um, and I know that when my thirst mechanisms switch on, I am I need to drink, I'm dehydrated. And mm-hmm. that shows me that I've not kept up with my water intake. So could you explain why hydration is actually so important for us?
1: Sure. And it's kind of for the, the reasons that you've just mentioned, right? And that you, in order for anything to in your body to move in and out of a cell membrane, there needs to be adequate liquid. There mm-hmm. needs to be adequate water. Um, And so without that, you can really slow, if you start to become dehydrated, and of course, it's not just your body that becomes dehydrated, it's your brain that becomes dehydrated. And when it does that, it loses a bit of of volume and um, your brain has to work harder in order to do its normal function. And that's when you get a higher degree of what's called perceived exertion. You know, your brain feels like it's working harder. And if it feels like it's working harder, everything feels just tougher to do. So you'll feel more tired, you'll feel more fatigued, you'll feel more irritable because you feel like you're just a bit exhausted and you're having to push, push, push a little bit more. Um, and so everything is just made a bit more difficult and a bit more painful by not having sufficient hydration. But the second point that I want to make, and this is a whole section that I had to take out of the book. Because really? I decided it was, yeah, it was too niche, is the impact. Um, I think, particularly for sports people of dehydration and particularly, you know, in the book, I do talk about, um, where exercise is a risk for the brain. So most of the time exercise is fantastic for the brain. It's the best way to help your brain grow, support your, your, um, mental health in terms of depression, anxiety, or reduced your dementia risk, all of that. But there are some sports, particularly contact sports, boxing, rugby, those sorts of things that, obviously have a risk of concussion and a concussion is a form of brain injury. But the additional risk of dehydration on top of that is that when you're dehydrated, you know, your brain isn't fixed in place. It's kind of suspended in a little, a very thin layer of cerebral spinal fluid. Um, So when you're dehydrated, there's less volume in your brain, but also less volume of Uh, cerebral spinal fluid and that means that actually more space between your the very soft delicate tissue of your brain and the very hard bony structure of the inside of your skull and so the risk for sports people, boxers, rugby players, roller derby, um, American football players of being dehydrated as well as then taking a blow to the head is that there's increased impact of that blow because there's less cushioning um and that there will be more diffuse damage to the brain and i wanted i wanted to spend more time on that in the book but um because i i think a lot about people who box and people who do weight cutting and mma and all of that sort of stuff um but just to say you know if anybody listening is participating in any of these sports or anything like that please ensure that you're properly hydrated to give your brain the very best chance of of being as safe as possible
0: um and so this kind of links because you did mention exercise which i do also want to touch upon but it shows how multifaceted it is to look after your brain it's not just nutrition um it's not just kind of exercise let's talk about stress and neurogenesis um which you'll explain this much better than me what neurogenesis is but you know you know my view is that it refers to the process by which neurons or nerve cells are generated within the brain. So, I'd love to expand a little bit on neurogenesis and does stress, because I think we all live in chronically elevated stress, or maybe <laughs> I just do. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm definitely going to put my hand up say I'm one of those people. Um, And I am somebody who knows a lot about this, but I am not always implementing the measures that I should be. Um, Same as nutrition. I know about it. I don't always follow the rules. Um, So what impact? So what is neurogenesis? How can we help neurogenesis? um, And stress, does that have an impact
1: on it? So neurogenesis and your explanation of neurogenesis was absolutely fine. So it's the process of building new brain cells, or and or protecting the survival of the ones that are already there and that's really important because we know that as we get older that you do begin to lose brain cells and it used to be believed that basically you were born with pretty much all the brain cells well inculcated by that point point, um, all the brain cells that you're going to have and therefore you had to protect them because it was just a downhill slide from there But actually, that understanding of the brain has shifted. And now we know that adult neurogenesis is a function of the mammalian brain. And we are mammals, so a function of the human brain as well. Um, And that's really important. And I talk in the book about a concept called cognitive reserve, or what I call building a pension pot for the brain. And that's basically the idea that there are habits and activities that you can do in your daily life that switch on your brain's ability to build new brain cells. And that's really important because as you get older and you, you know, maybe your brain does begin to shrink, and that shrinkage is associated with forgetfulness or what's called mild cognitive impairment. So you're less able to follow a conversation, you're more likely to get lost, lose things, um, and you have problems with your memory. Then, if you've been doing this all your life, if you've been turning on your neurogenesis all your life, you'll have more reserve to build on, which will be protective in terms of your function. And so that's really what I want people to be thinking about. And exercise is a fantastic way of doing it. It's probably our most robust way of turning on this neurogenesis. Um, And stress is the opposite. So we can take small amounts of stress. That's absolutely fine. Um, But chronic stress turns down our ability to create neurogenesis and is associated with a greater risk of depression which itself is increased, associated with an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. So, uh, yeah, the whole book is kind of predicated around how do we switch on neurogenesis to help you have a healthier, you know, bigger, more voluminous, better connected brain so that as we get older, um, you're in a, a better position to hold on to your, your function.
0: Wow, that's 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 so interesting, and also it's just amazing to hear that actually there is things that you can do to create new neurons mm. and new, and and you know new brain cells. It doesn't. It's not all downhill.
1: It's not. It doesn't have to be.
0: It doesn't exactly. So you can keep growing and evolving your brain, which is amazing. <laughs> I would like to ask you, um, how do you live? Well, what does live well, be well mean to you? Essentially, what does that phrase mean to you?
1: I think it's, I think of it as a kind of sense of peace. I think we don't think enough about just having a peaceful life, you know, just enjoying the things that you have, being appreciative, being grateful maybe, you know, not having to force everything or push or fight for everything you know and I, and I really encourage people to think about just creating more peace in their lives mm-hmm. and and valuing peace so for me um that's what live Will be well is, is about it's about you know friend friendships and relationships that are peaceful. It's about having a peaceful relationship with my body and with food. It's about doing activities that I enjoy and not doing the things that I don't want to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, you know, not putting myself in an, in a position where I feel like I'm compromised or my integrity is, in, is compromised and just cultivating as much peace as possible in my life.
0: I think that's an amazing fact that you said about silence and stillness, because I was actually reading a book, Metamorphosis, the other day. And it said how you never have silence in your life. You're constantly mm. stimulated. Even if that's just getting in the car and putting the radio on, you know, you do it instinctively. And actually, is that is that helping? Do you need a sense of just quietness and stillness? Mm. I'm that person that always puts music on when I run because we're constantly being stimulated by technology. And I feel even now at the moment, I'm having so much screen time more than I normally would as mm-hmm. a way of connection. Um, so I think, yeah, that's a really nice thing to actually think about and it's really nice to hear how what it means to you
1: Hmm.
0: and lastly i
1: always like to ask a fun and interesting fact
0: about the brain which we may not know
1: um well very interestingly the you know we spoke about the the vmh the area of the brain that is associated with aggressive behavior um that's also um and I say in the book it's very close to the part of the brain that's associated with sexual behavior Ooh. um and so there's a way that in the book I say you know that feeling angry is as natural as feeling sexy so <laughs> it shouldn't don't feel like you need to get rid of, of your anger um because it's it's, it's there in the same place <laughs> it's <a> so <passion.
0: laughs> I love how sex and anger are in the same part of the brain. That is a great fact to end on. Go and have lots of angry sex. Oh, no, that's brilliant. Kimberly, thank you so much for being a guest.
1: I hope this helps and, and try not to be too anxious. We'll be okay.
0: Okay. And lastly, where can we find out more information all about Kimberly Wilson?
1: Um, so probably the best place to head to is my website. That's Kimberlywilson.co. Um, and it's Kimberly with an L-E-Y. And otherwise I spend most of my time talking about the brain and emotions on Instagram where I am at Food and Sites at F W O D A N D P S Y C H.
0: Fantastic, I know also put that in the show notes thanks Kimberly
1: my pleasure
0: thank you for listening to live well be well please do share with your friends and help spread awareness of this podcast I hope these conversations inspire you to create a positive change in your life and if you do like the podcast please do leave a review until next time live well and be well